Hey gang, I'm here to talk transcendental nonsense. Now you might think I talk about that all the time, and indeed my family would probably agree with you. But this time I'm talking about Felix Cohen's Transcendental Nonsense and the Functional Approach from 1935. You know, maybe you're feeling a little bit of deja vu at this point because we're seeing some of the same kinds of arguments uh, because indeed Cohen is writing in the tradition of legal realism. What this piece offers is something a little bit new uh, in a description of the functional approach and an application of it. And I think it nicely kind of summarizes the kind of criticism of formalism that we've seen so far from the realists. So let's take a look. The piece is broken down into three parts. The first is kind of a tour through what Cohen clearly sees as the idiocies of formalism, giving us several examples of what he calls transcendental nonsense. Like with many such articles, and indeed much of legal scholarship, he kind of sets up a problem makes it sound like one of the worst problems ever, suggests a new way of looking at things, and then shows you how that new way of looking at things solves everything. So here, again, he sets up the idiocy of transcendental nonsense and then defines what he calls the functional approach, giving some indication of what it is. And then in the final section, he gives us some examples of how the functional approach applies to the classic problems of the day. So part one, some examples of transcendental nonsense. You know, you still see arguments that fall into the traps that he describes. And the basic problem, the, the, the evil that results from using these transcendental terms is that they are used to pretend to justify propositions, but in fact are entirely circular. So he gives an example. Corporations can be sued because they are persons. That's a justification given for why a court would rule that a corporation can be sued. On the other hand, corporations are persons in part because courts say that they can be sued. Similarly, a court might conclude that you can maintain a trespass action against someone, trespass to land, because they entered your property. But what makes something your property? Well, a lot of people would say that it's this thing that you have a right to exclude from. In other words, you can bring a trespass action. And so I can maintain a trespass action because it's my property, and it's my property in part because a court has concluded that I can maintain a trespass action. You see the problem? Another example, trademark. And here he points to kind of the erosion of the old rule that trademark was about, and here I'm referring to trademark more generally as the state causes of action, which, which backed up the protection of trade names, unique, you know, the ability to keep other people out of your namespace if you are a business. And, and here the, the, the idea had been that you were trying to prevent consumers from being ripped off by people who were imitating other, other names. But now it's moved more to seemingly the protection of value and courts are identifying, he says, protectable names as a kind of property because there is value in them. And as he points out, the reason that there is a value in them is because the court protects them, giving that name a kind of monopoly status. He says this is circular because, again, value exists only because of the protection. And so it's a race to acquire wealth. It's, it's interesting to think about the modern evolution of trademark, where there are pretty clear rules about only protecting basically meaningless marks, and only for the reason of eliminating what otherwise would be the deadweight loss of consumer confusion. Okay, so consumers should cheaply be able to identify what product it is they're buying and the source of that product. And trademark facilitates that. So that's a that's kind of a functional reason for why you would identify and protect certain names. And that reason might lead you 
to sculpting the legal rules to basically protecting certain kinds of names and maybe not other kind of names, maybe names that are too functional or too valuable or too generic you might keep out. I only bring that up because if you've had any trademark, you probably have seen the modern law and you probably have seen how it's evolved away from formalism and towards exactly the kinds of questions that he's asking. He's proposing the right kinds of questions. See the ones he's asking on, for example, page 817. And yet another example of transcendental nonsense, a well-worn one at this point for the realists, uh, of due process, which is a, this is the due process in the Constitution, which is a constant target for the legal realists because of the way in which that clause is used by the anti-progressive justices on the Supreme Court at the time. He says, and one may suspect that a court would not consistently hide behind a barrage of transcendental nonsense if the grounds of its decisions were such as could be presented without shame to the public. This is hearkening back to Holmes' passage in The Path of the Law, saying that when courts hide behind formalism, oftentimes it obscures from the public the real grounds for decision. So the jurisprudence of formalism is a mess of nonsense and and circularity. The problem is is akin to, he gives a really nice example at the end of this section, you know, if, if you were to say in the medical field, the proposition that opium puts men to sleep because it contains a dormitive principle is scientifically useful if dormitive principle is defined physically or chemically. But if dormitive principle just means a thing that puts people to sleep, Okay, that's, I'm adding that. He says it only serves to obstruct the path of understanding with the pretense of knowledge. It's like the person who uses big words when they could just as easily use simple words, and the using of big words makes it sound like, you know, the person has some additional knowledge, and all that's going on is obfuscation and making it more difficult to get to the bottom of things. Okay, so that's the problem, and it's one we're familiar with at this point. The argument's already been made by Holmes and Pound and Hale, so we've seen it, and, and we, we know what it is. And so on to part two. So how would a functionalist approach law? He gives us kind of four big ideas here. One, get rid of all meaningless concepts. As he says, any word that can't pay up in the currency of fact upon demand is to be declared bankrupt, and we are to have no further dealings with it. Okay. So no more transcendental ideas. Every word that we use should be tied to some facts on the ground. Number two, let's get rid of all meaningless questions. Fundamentally, he says there are only two significant questions in the field of law. One is how do courts actually decide cases of a given kind? And the other is how ought they to decide cases of a given kind? So there are really only two kinds of questions that are worth asking, he says. One is the descriptive question. You know, what are courts actually doing? And the second is normative. What should they do? Uh, Let me just, I guess I should break in here and just ask whether you agree with this. Is it not worth asking what makes cases be of a given kind? Is that implicit in the question, how do courts actually decide cases of a given kind? If so, are these questions so big that they assume lots of other questions that, um, people have traditionally asked about law. So I'm wondering if these are really the simplifying questions that are meant to get the functionalist kind of closer to the, to reality and away from transcendentalism. Uh, I'm not, I'm not so sure. Okay. Third, let's redefine terms in terms of patterns of judicial behavior. So uh, in terms of prediction of outcomes and consequences. So what is a legal concept? It just is the relation between a set of consequences and a set of facts. So what follows from a set of facts in the world legally? 
you can think of these like functions which map patterns of behavior and things actually occurring in the world to legal consequences. And these are the only relevant concepts for Felix Cohen. Just one note here, I can't help but talk about the mathematical section he has on 825 and in a way how mistaken I think that he is. So he confidently declares uh, what numbers really are. And I think this is maybe illustrative of a potential problem here. So here he's saying before mathematicians had given some notion of reality to imaginary numbers and negative numbers and and indeed that was wrong, he says. Instead, there just are regular numbers and then relations between the regular numbers. And so the reality of it is the relation between numbers and not the numbers themselves. So negative one is not real. It is a relation between regular integers. And this is just wrong. Negative one is just as much and just as little a number as is one. Both of them can be derived from more primitive axioms. And there is choice among which axioms you can pick. And in fact, this, this piece is written at a time when there was a lot of confidence in grounding mathematics in some basic axioms and therefore making it more real. And that whole project, at least in mathematics, kind of fell apart. He wants to cite mathematics as, as moving towards, you know, citing and holding on to a small set of real things, things which are undeniable, and then everything else is a derivation, is a relation to those real things. And then wants to say that law works in kind of the same way. There are real things, judicial outcomes, and everything else is about relations that make up those judicial outcomes. And here he cites Holmes and Hofeld, who taught us that all law is relational, and he related everything about law back to those judicial outcomes. It's curious, though, that this didn't work in mathematics and that mathematics shows that, in fact, reality is dependent on the axioms that we choose to begin with and that there isn't a, um, there, there isn't a natural set of axioms. And, and indeed, under any set of axioms, it's been shown that there are propositions that you can neither prove nor disprove. I wonder if law, similarly, is best conceived as the individual perception of relations between things, okay? Maybe we'll make that more precise as the semester goes on. But what I'm resisting here is Cohen's concept that there is a, a basic unit of reality uh, that we can ground in law in. Okay, finally in the section, he calls on us to use new methods to, to measure these things, to measure the patterns of judicial behavior and the prediction of outcomes and consequences. Look at page 829 on, on the place of the functional method among other kinds of methods. And he surveys the kind of the classifying methods, the history or genesis methods, the logical analysis of the nature of things, and then finally the study of significance in terms of consequences, i.e. the functional approach. And, and here he jumps into looking at the functional approach or the study of consequences in the world in other fields, including anthropology. And, and then finally predicts the kind of the downfall or the, or the last breath, the last gasping breath of the restatements and that whole enterprise of restating the law. I, I wonder what you think about this. And he says on 833 that, here's what he says, creative legal thought will more and more look behind the pretty array of quote unquote correct cases to the actual facts of judicial behavior. We'll make increasing use of statistical methods in the scientific description and prediction of judicial behavior. We'll more and more seek to map the hidden springs of judicial decision and to weigh the social forces which are represented on the bench. 
And on the critical side, I think that creative legal thought will more and more look behind the traditionally accepted principles of, quote, justice and, quote, reason to appraise in ethical terms the social values at stake in any choice between two precedents. Here there's, um, there's more than a hint of skepticism of enduring principles which are immune from social forces, right? And so the, the work of understanding law and, and, as he says, creative legal thought will, will be about measuring how people feel about things, including judges, but also, but also others. Do you guys think that's happened? I know you're not necessarily, you know, totally immersed in legal scholarship, but you've read a lot of cases. You've seen the way judges write these days in comparison to how they used to write. You know a little bit about writing briefs and arguments. Uh, what, what do you think about this? What is creative legal thought these days? What does it look like? Are the restatements on the way out or do they look different? Are the restatements different animals these days uh, because of legal realism and movements like it? All right, let's move on to the third part. Here he asks what difference the functional method makes for the big questions that we ask in law. And here, here, are, the, here are the four questions. One, what is law? What is the definition of law? And does the functional method help us appreciate what we're doing when we do law in a different way? Number two, what are legal rules? How do we determine the content of legal rules? What are they? Third, what is our theory of legal decisions? How should legal decisions be reached? What are they? And fourth, criticism. If you use the functional method, what is your critical stance toward law? How do you evaluate law? Okay, so let's take those in turn. All right, first, a simple question, what is law? All right, the definition of law. And, and here the functionalist says the criterion of any definition of law is its usefulness, not its correctness. Uh, to say that a definition is correct or not is what you might call a category error. It's like the wrong question. I mean, what, a definition can't be right or wrong. It can either be useful or not. And here, I think, uh, Cohen tells us that Holmes has it right, right? That, that what law is, it only is the prediction, the prophecy of what courts will do. How will we resolve disputes in the future? And he attacks, contrasts, really, contrasts in, uh, this definition with Blackstone's classical definition of law as, quote, a rule of civil conduct prescribed by the supreme power in a state, commanding what is right and prohibiting what is wrong. So what's wrong with that? Well, Cohen says that that definition combines two contradictory concepts in a way that allows people to kind of do whatever they want. When I say people, I mean judges and people in authority to justify whatever they want to do in any way. So what are the two sources here? Well, one is Hobbes, who said that law was authority distinguished from a state of nature. Okay, and we'll get more into the state of nature and law's authority as the, as the course goes on. But this is kind of a, um, really a kind of realistic theory that law just is what those with authority say that it is. And the reason we give over our freedom to such authorities is to get the advantages that we wouldn't get if we remained in a state of nature as between each other. Okay, so that's one strand. And we can see that because Blackstone says that it is a rule of civil conduct prescribed by the supreme power in a state. The second, though, commanding what is right and prohibiting what is wrong. Well, here you should ask yourself, is that kind of surplusage that it is whatever the supreme power in a state commands? But it says commanding what is right. And prohibiting what is wrong. Is that a constraint on what can be commanded? 
Or is it just a pronouncement that whatever is commanded is right? And in what sense is it right? Does that, does that mean that we, it, we're, we're somehow obliged to follow it, that it's obligatory? Does it mean that it's necessarily morally right? I mean, it, it's very unclear. Now, Cook's definition of law is that it's perfected reason. This was highly influential in early America where natural rights and natural law provided the, the kind of a, a moral basis from the, uh, for the break from England. So law is discovered. It is reason perfected. And if, we're, if we just think hard enough and we reason hard enough, we will latch on to the true law. Well, between these two, you can kind of get to whatever result you want. If you're an authority, then law just is what you say. And how can you criticize me? Because what I command is right. And I prohibit what is wrong. And so moral objections can't controvert that authority. All right, any opinions here? I, so we have two definitions of law at this point, uh, maybe more, but I'm just going to contrast two right now. And I'm curious which you prefer. We've got Holmes who says that, one, if you want to know what law is, think of it like a bad man. And what law is is just a prediction of what courts will do in the future. That just is the law. If I'm thinking, what is the law right now? It is my best guess about what courts are going to do in the future. Blackstone's rule is that it is a rule of civil conduct prescribed by the supreme power in a state commanding what's right and prohibiting what's wrong. So this kind of this authority conception, it's whatever the state commands. What, what do you think? Do you have an idea? Okay. Second application of the functional method, legal rules. What are they? And the functionalist, the realist, has a pretty good answer. Legal rules are whatever judges uh, say they are. All right. Now that, again, that sounds great, but what if you're a judge? Is is the right legal rule whatever is it a prediction of what you're going to say the legal rules are? You're going to try to predict what you're going to do. So no, for a judge, he says the the legal rule you should choose is is basically the rule that should be. Look at page eight thirty nine. He's got a really good description of how a realist, the steps a realist would go through to respond to the question whether there is a contract. You know, all of them bear on what courts have done in the past, the forces bearing on courts, what the consequences of ruling one way or the other are. So it's a very complicated question, you know, is there a contract in this case? Or or more precisely, what should be the rule for determining whether there's a contract in this case? For a judge, though, this is an inevitably moral question. You know, there's no predicting what you're going to do. It's a matter of politics. It's a policy-bound decision. It's a practical choice among competing interests and considerations. And so even though it's moral, it's not about a search in the stars for the true moral principle. Okay. Third, uh, the theory of legal decisions. So what are legal decisions? And, And for the realist and the functionalist, judicial decisions are social events that have social causes and downstream social effects. They're things that happen among our group. The decision itself is not the atom, he says. So he's making an analogy here back to chemistry and physics. The decision is a thing which has causes, which is complicated, and then which causes other things. The decision is not the basic unit of all legal analysis. You know what I mean? So to to know the law, you've got to know not just the decisions themselves and how they came out, but the context in which they came out and what happened afterwards. So... The decision is no more the atom than, as he says, referring to new knowledge in physics, the atom is not the atom, right? There, there are things inside of atoms, and it, physicists aren't satisfied with the smallest uh, unit. Uh, they are wondering if there is something more fundamental yet. 
So we have to study the affecting and resulting forces. Okay, and then he says this. If the understanding of any decision involves us necessarily in prophecy and thus in history, then the notion of law as something that exists completely and systematically at any given moment in time is false. Law is a social process, a complex of human activities, and an adequate legal science must deal with human activity, with cause and effect, with the past and the future. Legal science, as traditionally conceived, attempts to give an instantaneous snapshot of an existing and completed system of rights and duties. Within that system, there are no temporal processes, no cause and no effect, no past and no future. A legal decision is thus conceived as a logical deduction from fixed principles. Okay. And of course, he says this is just wrong. So even if you think about Hofeld, we think of these rights and duties and privileges and no rights and powers. And well, I guess at least the powers give you a sense that rights and duties can change over time. But but here he's really saying that to know what the law is, is a, you know, it's it's kind of bringing it back to Holmes. It's a prophecy of what is going to happen in the future. And that involves seeing past decisions, not as isolated data points all smashed together in time, but as events which occurred in a complex history and had complex downstream and upstream connections. OK, so in, in this regard, he says we're really in the infancy of the study of uh, the theory of legal decisions. We have some understanding of how economics influences the decisions, but not a lot. So we're going to need to study more. And this is a, the functional method is kind of a science of law, which is in its, in its emphasis. Okay, f- last thing here, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. On what grounds does a functionalist criticize the law? You know, we know how a formalist would do it. That's, that's just not where the corporation is. Or that's not what due process requires, right? I mean, uh, w- there's this kind of fixed concept of what these things are, which Cohen criticizes as nonsense. But what is the stance taken by a functionalist critic? A- and here he says the realists have a long way to go. Part of it he chalks up to the kind of the incuriosity of practicing lawyers who are more interested in in understanding, you know, what's going to happen in the next case or or, you know, once they get paid a fee, they're kind of done with it. And so it's hard to chart upstream and downstream consequences. But he, he thinks it's more fundamental than that. It's just really hard to sort through all the consequences of, uh, of, of these things. And, and in order to do so, we need, a, we need a theory of values so that we can ask particular questions about how rules will affect those values. Instead, we're kind of going into it just asking, well, what's happening <laughs> with these decisions? And they're just, they're, of course, there are many things happening all at the same time. And what we need are values that kind of siphon down the web of legal relations and consequences into something we can actually ask questions about. Okay, I think I'll quit there. Gone on long enough.